Welcome to Happily Ever After is just the beginning. Keeping your relationship not just together, but happy, and we mean truly happy, is part art and part science. You've come to the right place. Here's your host, Leslie Dorries. According to what I found on Google, vulnerability is defined as the quality or state of being exposed to the possibility of being attacked or harmed, either physically or emotionally, or its openness or, or susceptibility to attack or harm, or it's capable of being physically or emotionally wounded. Wow, no wonder people run from the word. Who wants to voluntarily sign up for that? But in order to get what most of us deeply want, to be fully seen and accepted for who we are, vulnerability is required. And walking the tightrope of sharing enough to be in relationships but not so much as to be unprotected is the game that's played. And quite frankly, it doesn't really work. But what if there was another way? Well, reinvention architect and mindset coach, speaker, and author Craig Stanland is here to offer that alternative. So, Craig, thanks for coming on the show and talking about you know this ever-present topic that all of us are terrified about. <laughs> well, Leslie, thank you so much for having me on. It is such an important topic for individuals in general, but it was just such a an important catalyst in my own life. And, and that's why I love this topic. Right. So you wrote a piece that appeared on the Good Men Project titled, Four Powerful Questions to Embrace Your Vulnerability and Create the Extraordinary. So I love that juxtaposition between vulnerability and extraordinary. So what is the connection between these two? Well, I think that Vulnerability is a gateway to freedom. Oh. And freedom to me is an extraordinary way to live. And I'm going to give just a little bit of context to this um, for the audience. I actually was uh, an extremely successful sales executive. I owned four homes. I had the nice cars, the nice watches, VIP status at the finest restaurants, you know, all of that. Mm -hmm. And I lost sight of what's truly important in life. And I committed fraud against one of the largest technology companies in the world. And I was arrested by the FBI. I lost everything. I went to prison and I had to reinvent my life from scratch. And one of the things that I really contended with so much was the shame for my choices. Uh -huh. And that shame was so consuming that I actually did start planning how I would end my life. That's how wow. powerful shame is. Uh -huh. And I was so fortunate that a very timely visit from my best friend of over 30 years when I was inside prison turned my life around. And it was at that point that I understood that I was so consumed by shame and that it owned my life. And if I didn't own my story, it was going to own me for the remainder of my life. And I didn't want that. I wanted that freedom. I wanted that path to the extraordinary. And that's what led me to vulnerability. And it's been a, it's been a wild ride, but it's yeah. one of the primary drivers that's created the life that I live now that I absolutely love. So, you, you talk about shame and, and, you know, 
there, there are some things in life that we do that we actually should feel bad about. I mean, you know, but, but shame is, shame's a little bit different. Shame is, the way I've heard it described um, is not I did something inappropriate or hurtful, but that I am inappropriate or bad. It, it's, it's, it's that, that shame just washes over us. I mean, there are things, you know, there, there are things in my past that anytime they come up, it really is shame. I mean, I, you know, you're flooded with this horrendously horrible feeling. So what is the connection that you made between shame and vulnerability? So the way that I started looking at it, I was inside prison when I started doing this. I picked up the practice of journaling, um, mm-hmm. and I still do it eight years later every single mm-hmm. day. It's that important to me. And I started thinking about shame and the fact that I was hiding, that mm-hmm. there was this secret that I wanted to keep. I was so afraid of when I was released and having to share my story with people that I I looked at shame as something that lives and breathes in the dark. Uh It's like a fungus. Uh And it was just going to breed. And I I remember writing in my journal, what do we do with something that's in the dark? We turn the light on. And that, to me, became that vulnerability. I was able to just through that, you know, inner work and just journaling and, and really connecting with what mattered to me, I said, vulnerability is that light, and I need to own my story. So at the beginning of the show, I was listing what I had found on Google when I was defined, you know, what, what does vulnerability mean? And you have these horrendous, horrendous definitions of this word. So how do you, how do you view vulnerability? What, what does that mean to you? So vulnerability, by the way, when you were reading those definitions, <laughs> I'm sitting in my chair cringing. And yes. Shoulders are rounding. I'm getting smaller, physically smaller as you were saying it. That's how, I mean, think about it. That's how yeah. powerful that word really is. And so vulnerability to me means expressing my authentic self. Uh-huh. And what that means to me is... I really thought about hiding that part of my story. Uh And one of the, I want to make sure I articulate this correctly, one of the factors that drove my decision to commit fraud in the first place was the fact that I never felt like I was enough. Uh And worth is on the other side of that. I never Uh felt like I was enough. I never felt like I was worthy. And when I started looking at my situation and thinking about hiding a part of my life that literally has made me who I am. It's such a, it was such a monumental thing to get arrested by the FBI, to go to prison, to lose everything. It's not something I can hide. And if I was to hide that, how would I ever be whole if I dismissed or hid a part of what makes me who I am? And I realized that wanting that sense of feeling enough was to love, embrace, and accept all parts of me. And then, then that's where the vulnerability came in, was to share that openly in a way that could be meaningful and add value to others. Does that make sense? It, it, it does. And, and my guess is that that's, a, that that's kind of a tough, you know, um, dance to, to do because I, in the article you said 
that we don't own what we hide, what we hide owns us. And that's kind of what you're talking about, that if we don't, you know, if, if we pretend or, or shove in the closet these parts of ourselves or that um, we're not particularly happy with, they just grow. That it, it's, it, it's almost like um, the idea of, you know, I'll use this with my clients about, you know, don't think about pink elephants. And what just popped into your head? Um, yep. you know, it's it's so when you're trying to shove this stuff away, you almost start. It sounds as if you're almost feeding it. Is, I, I I love that you just said that because I absolutely agree with that. If if we hide it, we give it strength. Mm-hmm. We give it power, and the more that we give it power, the harder it's going to be to express that vulnerability and to be free from it. It's always going to be that shadow that lives in the background, and those shadows will come out mm-hmm. in so many different ways. They'll impact our relationships. They'll impact how we show up for ourselves. And so I think it's so critical to, to take its food away, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, to take, that, to take that food away and to... And for me, I'll, I'll share a little bit of, you know, how I started. And Please. I think this is kind of important to the conversation. Yeah. Uh, I realized that, you know, I realized that it was a sense of uh, lack of worth, uh-huh. um, inadequacy that drove those choices. But there was also a tremendous amount of fear. There was so much fear. I could have been, I was married at the time. I got uh-huh. divorced as a result of my arrest. And uh-huh. I could have been honest with her and said that, I can't afford our lifestyle anymore. Uh, I can't uh-huh. afford the Jimmy Choo's and the Christian Louis Vuittons and right. the fancy dinners. Uh, but I was too scared to do that. So fear was such a driving factor to my choice to commit fraud that when I was in prison, I, I understood that and I intuitively said, I have to conquer all of my fears. I've got to <laughs> list them and I've got to conquer them. And my number one fear this ties into the vulnerability. My number uh-huh. one fear was crystal clear, even though I was always in the top three in my company, a top performer, uh-huh. um, you know, $21 million in sales, right. you know, all of those things, public speaking. Uh. Scared the bejesus <laughs> out of me. Yeah, I well, was terrified. Yeah. Well, uh, amazingly enough, people sometimes list, list that as, as being more afraid of that than of actually dying, which... <laughs> I mean, and you know, and, and and I've done some public speaking, not 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 huge crowds, but I, you know, and every time I feel like I'm going to die before I open my mouth, it's like, it's like, what is that about? There's, oh my God, there's a great Jerry Seinfeld bit about what you just said. He said that public speaking is ranked higher than death as people's biggest fear. He goes, that means the person delivering the eulogy. It would rather be in the coffin than <laughs> delivering the eulogy. <laughs> but, so, so here I am in prison, you know, yeah. working through this, and I had to, had to conquer that fear, so I started looking into public speaking um, mm-hmm. classes, mm-hmm. and that led me to Toastmasters. Mm. And um, Toastmasters is a wonderful organization. <laughs> I highly recommend it. And I, so when I started speaking, I realized I have to jump into the deep end. Mm-hmm. I, I have to go all in if I'm going to really, A, conquer this fear and to own my story and to be vulnerable. So the mm-hmm. first talk that somebody gives in a Toastmasters group is called the icebreaker. 
and it's literally as it sounds. It's kind of your introductory, and you can take it any which direction you want. I jumped into the deep end and led with the fact that I was arrested by the FBI. Right. And Jaws just hit the yeah, ground. Which, yeah, which will get everybody's attention. <laughs> you, you couldn't hear a pin. I mean, you could hear a pin drop. It right. was so quiet. I'm looking at these jaws agape, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, what am I doing? I'm insane. Why am I doing this? I'm going to, I'm going to die. <laughs> and when I finished, Postmaster speeches are only about seven minutes or so. Uh-huh. So at the end of my seven minutes, I get a round of applause. I sit in my seat, and this is going to be the silliest sounding thing in the world, but it speaks right. to that power of shame. Uh-huh. I realized I didn't die. Yeah. I realized I was still alive, mm-hmm. and it felt good. And it felt liberating. I had expressed that vulnerability and received the freedom that's on the other side of that. And so I was very fortunate that it happened that way because it really, it fueled my desire to keep going. Well, and it's, you know, it's interesting because I, you know, I think most of us, just, just as you're giving that example, that, that most of what we fear never comes to pass. And I think that one of the things, and you talk about vul- embracing vulnerability as freedom, but how do you separate out? Because I think the thing that reason why we don't like to be vulnerable is because it means somebody could reject us. And so we're trying to play this game because um, we don't feel good enough. I think that's... I think that's um, unless you're a narcissist, that's a pretty much universal feeling. <laughs> um, that, you know, that somehow, you know, I mean, it's, it's like Maya Angelou thinking, you know, she's how many poet, poetry, how many books and how well-known she was, but she, every time she published a book, she was afraid that somebody was going to find her out. <laughs> like, you know, and it's like, so we all have this thing. How does one get over that? And maybe we don't get over it. Maybe we just have a process of dealing with it but but that that utter fear that if I really let all of my parts out into the light um, I nope I, I, I'm, I'm unlovable I'm not worthy that's such a that's such an important question and dialogue to have because that is the biggest obstacle to being vulnerable Mm-hmm. And there are many different ways that I could take it, but I think what's gonna, what I'd like to do is actually address it from the lens of self-trust. Okay. And I think building that self-trust is absolutely critical to being vulnerable. And self-trust is, I think a lot of people think of self-trust as the faith that things are going to work out okay. Mm-hmm. I don't agree with that at all. To me, self-trust is regardless of how things turn out, I know I'll be okay. Yeah, I and love And I think that is such a massive delineator. I love that distinction because, because the first one means we're trying to manipulate events. The second one means whatever the events, you know, whatever the events are, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be, I'm going to be capable of dealing with it in, in, in some way, shape, manner, or form. Exactly. And that's what I think gives us the power to be vulnerable because oftentimes that rejection that we fear, that is an outcome. 
and we cannot control the outcome nope. as much as we think we can, <laughs> as much as we try. As much as everybody to tries we to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can't, we can't control that. And if the outcome, you know, oftentimes, yes, there may be that rejection. The biggest fears may come true. But when we know that we're going to be okay, and I think okay is an extremely underrated state of being. Yep. <laughs> I think there's nothing wrong with being okay. I think, it's, I think it's absolutely wonderful. When we know we're going to be okay, you know, that allows us that grace and compassion that that rejection is going to sting. Uh-huh. And it's, it's going to hurt. And it might knock us down a couple of pegs. But we still know we're going to be okay. And we're right. going to recover. And I think what, for me, is the other component of this is effort over outcome. Uh-huh. And the fact is, we are the effort. That's all we ever are. We're never the outcome because we can't control it. Uh-huh. So if we're vulnerable and we put ourselves out there and we express ourselves, that's within our control and we're navigating the fear that's screaming at us mm-hmm. not to do that. <laughs> and when we, connect, when we connect with that and we come through the other side, I view fear as um, a door on our path. kind of looks like a Salvador Dali painting where there's yeah. you know, literally just a door in the middle of nowhere <laughs> you know, in a frame. Right. You, can, you can walk around it. You can walk through it. There's nothing that says you have to go through that door. But every single time I go through that door, my world expands exponentially. I love it. And I think that's, and I think that's a big, big factor to all this is focusing on that effort, focusing on that self-trust and knowing that you're going to be okay and that you're, you're living expansively. And then we come back to, when we hide from something, that's living um, in a diminishing way. We start yeah. shrinking our world. So this is Happily Ever After. It's just the beginning on webtalkradio.net. I'm Leslie Dorries, and I'm talking about vulnerability, what it is, what makes it difficult, and why it is so necessary with reinvention architect and mindset coach, speaker, and author Craig Stanland. And if you struggle to open up, share your true self, and create real connection, you are not alone. Falling in love won't automatically make it happen. It's a concept that's talked about a lot, is celebrated when others show it, but isn't well taught. But if you're wanting to be more open and authentic in your marriage, I can help. I invite you to take a moment and get in touch to schedule your five-star relationship session with me. You can reach me by email at leslie, L-E-S-L-I, at foundationscoachingnc.com. That's F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N-S coaching and is in nancy c is in charlie.com or you can reach me by phone at area code 919-924-0463 again that's 919-924-0463 and i want to get back to this conversation about vulnerability and how you could get started to embrace yours so craig in your article you mentioned four questions that can really help start someone on this vulnerability journey the first two are, are you settling, and do you know what you want? And those questions are so important. So how are they helpful? In regards to vulnerability, let's start, let's look at the first one. Are you settling? Mm -hmm. Um, It's very easy to, let's say that life on the outside looks good. 
you're married, you've got a good job, you've got, you know, the two cars, you go on the two vacations a year, everything looks really good on the outside. And you've done all the things that you think that you should do and met all the opinions and expectations of others. But if you're feeling like, if you ask yourself, is this all there is? Mm -hmm. If you feel like there is some untapped potential within you and you're afraid to go for it, I believe that you're settling. And Mm -hmm. I think that it's settling for breadcrumbs when the entire loaf is readily available to all of us. Mm -hmm. And to be able to say in the face of what looks to be and I don't like this word, but I think it's ideal, the quote-unquote perfect life. Right. If you don't feel that way, to admit that is one of the most vulnerable things that we can do. Sure. That is a really powerful initial step to say in the face of, let's say, materialistic and financial success, I'm not happy, and I feel like I'm settling. Mm -hmm. That's extremely vulnerable. And that, when we can admit that, admit that about our lives, Um, we really get the ball rolling. You know, we really get the ball rolling, and that leads into number two. Mm -hmm. Do you know what you really want? Yeah. And I find, and I'm I'm, I'm really curious if you experience this with your clients when you work with them. If Mm -hmm. I ask my clients, do you know, what what do you want? Let's get get down to brass tacks. What do you want? Well, I don't want to work nine to five. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do this. And they go on a laundry list Mm -hmm. and they're so happy. They're so proud. You can feel the weight coming off of their shoulders. And every single time I go, thank you so much, but you didn't answer my question. (laughs) Right. Right. You didn't get clear. And they're so confused. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's the way that our human brains are wired, you know, for survival. The things Mm -hmm. that we want don't help our survival. The things that we don't want help keep us alive. So I, you know, totally get it. It's a natural way that we are. But to to say, you know what, yes, I am uh, a C-level executive. And you know what, I want to write. Mm-hmm. I want to write a Civil War novel. Mm-hmm. That, to me, is extremely vulnerable because there's identity associated with which, who you are, you know, who you think mm-hmm. you are. Um, mm-hmm. There's so many layers to that. So getting crystal clear on what we want is extremely vulnerable, and it's also very challenging to admit that we want these things, particularly well, when it's outside of our normal conditioning. Well, and it's, and it's so funny that you talk about this because it's, it's one of the things that I work with my clients. And I, I, I did not come up with this concept. Um, Terry Reel, who's a, who's a uh, therapist and writer and just wonderful person, came up with this, you know, about it's easy to criticize or complain, but the power is in making a request, which is mm. the, I don't like all this stuff okay, what, you know, what do you want? It's like, oh, now I actually have to ask for, oh, I want to learn how to ballroom dance or I want to write a novel or I, you know, <laughs> you know it's, it, 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 is that, it is that changing because it really is, because, because again, we have all these things, you know, and sorry, as you, were, as you were talking about wanting to write your, you know, the Civil War novel, well, I'm having, I have my mother's voice in my head going, well, what makes you think you can do that? <laughs> I mean, she's actually, right? she, actually, she actually said that to me about several things over the course of my life. And it's kind of like, 
you know, and I and I do think that that's where a lot of these um, this confusion about um, am I settling? What do I want? Because we're so bombarded with the shoulds that this is. I mean, you always love it. Um, you know, you have these people. I think it was probably Bill Gates, Steve Jobs. You know, it's like, well, nobody told us we couldn't do it that way. <laughs> it's like they just did, and it's like, but if they've been paying attention to, well, you can't do it that way. Why not? It. I, I, I love that you just said that because I'm thinking of my my own reinvention after prison. Mm -hmm. I, so there's a court order barring me from my old industry. So I literally right. had to reinvent from scratch. And my family who meant very well, mm -hmm. when I said, boy, you know, I started writing a book. I started writing my book when I was in prison. Mm -hmm. And do you know how to write a book? What are you going to possibly write about? What could you say? Who would want to listen to what you have to say? <laughs> and to be, able to, to be able to work through all of that um, I think in a sense that almost leads to, I don't mean to jump ahead, but the, the third right. question, are you living a right. life that's authentic to you? Well, and, and that's, I think that, that's such ahead, an important, that is such an important question that I don't think most of us ever stop and think about it. Until, I mean, this is one of those things where I think, I think that's what midlife crises are about, is that suddenly you realize, I'm on a road I don't want to be on, but then where's the exit? I... I so I actually came up with a, um, a term called the golden treadmill, uh -huh. and it describes in a sense exactly that. The golden treadmill is sprinting on a treadmill, trying to find purpose, meaning, and fulfillment, and doing it through job titles and materialism, money, uh -huh. status, uh -huh. power. Uh -huh. And much like running on a treadmill, you're really not going to get anywhere. I mean, it's the equivalent of um, trying to catch the horizon while you're running on a treadmill. It will never happen. <laughs> Right. And there are, three, there are three things that can happen to us on the, on the treadmill. Number one, we stay put on it. We uh -huh. stay put on it, and we don't live a life that's authentic to us, and we end up dying with regrets. Uh -huh. um, brutal to say, but I believe that. Number uh -huh. two, life will knock us off the treadmill. And that can be, for me, it was prison, um, uh -huh. divorce, job loss. Uh, right. There's a lot of different things that can happen, and it knocks you off the treadmill. Then you have a choice. A lot of people get back on the treadmill. A lot of people stay off and forge that new path. And that's the third option. Right. It's slowing the treadmill down, making the conscious, deliberate choice to step off of it and onto the path of meaning. And that, to me, is living that authentic life. And in regards to vulnerability, it's really hard. It to, it's, are you living a life that's authentic to you? To say no uh -huh. That question, when you have so much of yourself invested in everything you've done, think of how terrifying that is to actually admit that. Yeah. Well, and so how do people figure that out? Because, that, you know, when, and, and, and for me, and I'm going to tell you, you know, kind of my shortcut is anytime the word should comes up, that that, that word is, to me, worthy of examination. You, sh you should do this. You should do that. A, a, a good man does this. A, a good wife does that. You know, it's, it's like the shoulds. Um, to me, is, 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 a, is a place to start thinking about whether or not it's authentic. But what do you recommend for somebody to say, how do I know if I'm living an authentic life? I think I love, by the way, I love looking at the shoulds. I think that is absolutely genius. Uh, I would say 
It is um, a question that I had asked earlier. If you find yourself, start kind of tracking how many times you say, is this all there is? Mm, okay. Is this what I am destined to be doing? Mm-hmm. Is this what I truly want to be doing? Is this what I'm meant to be doing? Is this actually my gifts? And then taking it a little bit further, looking back to childhood, what did mm-hmm. you do as a child? You know those activities where like time absolutely stands still? You know, it's all of a sudden, it's nine in the morning and then all of a sudden your mom's calling you for dinner. Right. And you have no idea where the heck the day went. Right. You know, what was that activity? Mm-hmm. And when's the last time you actually did that? Mm-hmm. Um, how much joy do you actually have in your life? And I think that's a little, that's a tricky one because I think some people can confuse happiness with joy. And happiness is very fleeting and comes from right. externals where joy is that internal. Mm-hmm. Um, but getting a little clear on that and bringing awareness into you know, how much, how much true joy are you feeling? Um, I would also say, do you feel like you're using that treadmill analogy again? Mm-hmm. How much chasing are you doing versus how much creating are you doing? Mm-hmm. Oh, I because like that. chasing is never going to, it's never going to, by the way, that's actually going to be the um, concept of my next book. Oh, <laughs> so thank it. you. I'm glad that it landed. <laughs> it be kind of transforming from, transforming from chaser to creator, something uh-huh. along those lines. Uh-huh. But chasing purpose, meaning, fulfillment, authenticity, those aren't things to chase. Those are things to create and cultivate over time. And I think really looking at what mode we're operating in. I would also suggest looking at the daily routine. Are you living a life on autopilot? Are you just yes. cruising along and it's, it's Groundhog Day, day after day, and all of a sudden, you know, years have gone by. Mm-hmm. You know, looking at all of these things, I know I just listed a lot of stuff, but there, there are many different avenues to figure out if one is living authentically. Well, and, and that kind of brings us to the last question, and as you were talking about that chasing versus creating, um, and, I'm, and I'm wondering if that concept or how that concept applies to your last question, which are your actions in alignment with who you are and who you want to become? And I'm wondering if that's, you know, because if I'm chasing, right, if I'm, if I'm paying attention to what the world, the universe, whatever, they, the great they, that if I ever meet them, I'm going to smack them, um, say we're supposed to be doing you know well they say well who are these people and who put them in charge so is that kind of that idea of you know my actions because again I can have this concept right of oh it wouldn't this be great if I could quit my job and write a book right (laughs) or write a book while I'm working or whatever it is but it's the actions that make so much that that, that create our lives and so how do we pay attention to that Get out of that, so auto, that autopilot. That is, I, I love this. And I think it's, all of the questions are important, but this one really gets down to it. It gets into the nitty gritty and the importance of this. And you, the fact that you mentioned autopilot is so critical to it is let's, we'll use the Civil War novel as mm-hmm. the example. Mm-hmm. Somebody who says that they want to do that. It's a dream of theirs for the past 20 years. They've got characters. They've got, you know, the setting, um, you know, all of the things in their head, but they have not written one word 
That I think is so important is that's who you want to become as a writer. And if you haven't put pen to paper or sat down at a keyboard and typed that first word, there's always going to be that disparity within us. And that's where that, that action has to be in alignment with who we really are. And deep down, if you want to write, you're a writer. And I think right. that's so critically important to give, to give ourselves permission. There's not this, you know, let's use the they example. Mm-hmm. There's not this magic they out there that grants you this magical thing that says you're a writer. It's mm-hmm. literally a decision. I'm right. a writer. And now that you've said that, are your actions in alignment with that? Because if they're not, it's going gonna, it's gonna to have that emptiness inside. It's going to have that incongruence which is not a fun way to live. Mm -hmm. So we've really got to, you know, one of the ways I like doing this is going three years in the future. Mm. Who do you want to be three years in the future? What is the dream life that you want to create for yourself? Um, Sticking with the writing example, I'd like to have a published book at that point. Uh Great. Are the actions you're taking now going to create the future that you want to create? And if they're not, you still have plenty of time because it's three years in the future mm-hmm. to course correct. Right. You know, and I think it, it comes back to what we were saying earlier about that effort over outcome. Mm. And it's focusing on the fact that to sit down and write that first word means that you're facing your imposter syndrome, your self-doubt, your yeah. fear, those voices of who do you think you are to write. You're right. going through all that, and when you start doing it consistent, consistently, all of a sudden, your actions are in alignment with who you are and who you want to become, and you are creating that internal joy, which then from there stems a sense of purpose, a sense of agency, meaning, and fulfillment. And that's what I think we truly want in our lives, is our and, lives to have meaning. Right, and, and the only way to do that is to be vulnerable, vulnerable just to even have those concepts, vulnerable to take that risk, vulnerable to, to claim to the world, even, even if it's only in your head you're claiming it to the world, that I want to be a published author or I want to have a book because sometimes, I mean, and especially now, that's also much easier to do than it was 20 years ago. But <laughs> we're not going to talk about, we're not gonna talk about the logistics. Um, but, it, but it is just getting past, you know, and, and it, it is, I, for me, a lot of it is, is finding a way to silence the inner critic and, as well as the outer ones uh, because that's to me what I'm hearing when you're talking about becoming authentic. It is it's both of those battles. Yeah. It is both of those battles. I think the primary battle, and this comes back to the vulnerability, is actually with that inner critic. Yep. When we can handle the inner critic, the outer critics become much easier. And I think something, I don't want to take us too sideways, but I think something really important when we want to start living our authentic life and we want to be that writer, we want to be a painter, whatever it is, I think that it's extremely rare to find somebody else who's on the field of battle who's going to judge you poorly. It only comes from the people sitting in the cheap seats. It's yeah, very much that, the man in the arena quote. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. That was just what popped into my head was the man in the arena. Um, 
because yeah, it, you know, be, be, because again, we, the people in the arena know it's messy and scary, and sometimes you're going to feel like you're making headway, and other times it's going to be like, why am I doing this? But but I do, but I do agree with that. Um, so this has been a wonderful conversation, and I wish we could continue it. Um, but Craig, can you please tell? Um, the listeners where they can learn more about you, more about this concept of, of vulnerability, living an authentic life, because you, again, we all say we want to do it, but, but the proof is in the pudding. So can you share? So absolutely. So the first spot I would send people is my website, craigstanland.com. And then secondly, I'd suggest checking out my book, Blank Canvas, How I Reinvented My Life After Prison. It's the most vulnerable I've ever been. Uh-huh. And I knew that I had to, to help the one person that I really wanted to help with that book. I needed to be vulnerable. Uh-huh. And that, to me, was a practice in everything that we have just talked about. So I think that would be another great place to go. And I'd like to add, in the month of January, I'm donating 25% of all proceeds to Best Furry Friends, which is a rehabilitation center for cats because we just adopted a special needs cat, a uh, tripod kitten. And she's brought so much joy into our life that I want to give back a little bit. So if anybody is interested, you'll you'll be helping a really good cause. Absolutely. I have have a fuzzy one myself. Um, So being vulnerable is not weakness. In fact, it takes great courage to open up and share who you are, even with yourself. And the alternative is what Henry David Thoreau meant when he said, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. So what would it take for you to embrace vulnerability and create more authentic relationships? And I'm hoping that one of the things that you do is to continue to listen to this show. Please share it with your friends. And until next week, stay loving.